Previously on Storyological. <laughs> An interesting life. Is that what you're going to call your memoir? No. What are you going to call it? Um, the name of my m- memoir, the name of my memoir will be uh, A Life Lived in Whimsy, colon, Wasn't That Great. <laughs> Not a life lived in whimsy's colon. That's good. Oh, a life lived in whimsy's colon. Uh, that can be uh, that can be your memoir. You, you can write it about six a years. Fake, you a can fake publish memoir it. from Dorothy Sayers. You could go for that too. I was thinking it can be your posthumous publication of your journal entries that you wrote while reading my memoir, <laughs> remarking <laughs> on all the things I wrote and how very accurate they were. Hundred percent. This is Storylogical, a podcast about amazing stories that we kind of like. I'm Chris Camerud. And I'm E.G. Kosh. My pick this week is The Dead Father Cookbook by Ashley Blooms, which was in Strange Horizons in July 2017. Ashley Blooms, fellow Grisham fellow, graduate of the that. MFA program at the University of Mississippi. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I was like, oh, I know me one of them. You know you one of them. Yeah, okay. I know me one of them. Yeah. Uh, so, The Dead Father Cookbook is about Addie and her brother Ben and Addie wants to bring her brother back closer to her um, after their father dies and she uses it as an excuse to bring him home and trick him into raising the father from the dead uh, by feeding Ben the dad's ashes. She bakes the ashes into quesadillas, into pancakes, into porridge. Yes, really, I mean, a host of culinary techniques, not just baking. I was a bit disappointed there were no recipes and proportions, but, I mean, fair enough. Yeah, use your imagination, <laughs> goddammit. Use <laughs> some imagination. Really, I wasn't really disappointed in that. It suddenly recurred to me, I'm like, oh, yeah. And so Ben, ben goes back home, back to the familial home, I mean, I call it familial. The guy, the father has been gone for six years and was a drunk numpty when he was home. But Ben comes back because Addie asks him to and he thinks that that Addie's cry for help, her desire to have him there is about um, about their father. But really, their father is just a distraction, a displacement activity. The whole story is... It is. What a comment on parroting. This is my dad. He's a displacement, <laughs> He's a displacement activity. activity, right? Also, he turns out to be kind of made of mucus at the end of the story. Well, that's not how he looked in real life. That's just a reflection of his soul. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Um, right, but the whole thing is about Addie trying to rekindle the relationship with Ben, that she's scared he is disappearing. He is escaping from the the kind of pain and the craziness of their childhood home and and probably the father dying is like exacerbates this fear right that's the last thread the last thing they had in common and so with him gone she needs to reforge this relationship yeah literally reforge their father yeah yeah exactly yeah the father is the metaphor for the relationship between the kids mm-hmm. yeah yeah and it, uh it really spews, spews right out of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as, as delicately sticky as the bond that, that holds them together. Yeah, I wondered, I wondered how, how, how she uh, was going to do the, yeah, how that's a documentary, True to life. Right? I mean, that's what you always got to ask an author. I mean, what part of this is autobiography? I'm guessing 75%. Right, yeah. 
possibly 85, you know. No, but I I wondered initially how they how she was going to have this scene of the father coming back, how she was going to conduct the reanimation um, in a way that wasn't kitsch, wasn't corny, wasn't done a hundred times. And she pulled it off really well. My sister uh, told me a story once. I think we were in a hospital sitting in chairs, as one often sits inside of them. Uh, And she was telling me about something that she understood about life of late from someone, which was that families of mental illness or various forms of addiction, alcoholism, cycles of abuse stuff. That, in a family like that, one sibling often might break completely from home and become almost another person. And this kind of, for them, seems the only healthy response. Not necessarily right, but the only way they can live a life that they think is healthy is to divorce themselves from home. And that was how... I came to understand and adore this story, which has a sweet and gentle creepiness throughout. It is a story of, of a very warm horror. Uh, cuddly horror. Yeah, cuddly horror, which depending on, to bring up imagination again, de- depending on how much imaginative life you give to the story, it uncovers a lot of delightfully dark twisted ideas of love and loneliness and selfishness and so yeah i liked i loved the way that the story was working that the that the story was a kind of story of childhood magic that was born out of pain and love and you know addy still holds on to that this is what home is and and ben is depicted like he's out there feeling like he was raised by wolves and there's a moment where he says that you know what are we up to you know, let's let's get this dad thing over with because I got to go home, mm. right? And that's the thing that hits hardest because the idea that he's built a home separate from her. I think one of the ways you said that the bringing the father back, how did it avoid being kitsch? I think is that because it functioned so well as being both entirely the point of the story, but entirely beside the point in that she's literally force feeding her brother their shared past. Yeah. Um, to bring him back to her that that's that's where all of the the stuff of the story comes from and and the the entirely ineffectual goo of the dad that they reanimate by sticking bits of their memories these little mementos Mm -hmm. inside is is glorious and i think and i think in some ways like i can imagine people's love for this story like how how high their love goes turns on how much they care about Ben's response to what's going on. And like when I first, when I first read it, my, my basic attachment to Ben as a character was that for him, this stuff that seems crazy ultimately is so familiar that it just, it just, it just nestles up beside him mm-hmm. and he goes with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I, I took it that their lives had been full of this magic she'd been using throughout their childhood to get them through to to feed them when they had nothing in the fridge but half a loaf of white bread um to distract him when they had no presents at christmas you know those are the kind of details that i really love because it made real and physical all of the energy and effort that she had poured into essentially raising her brother when she was still a child and so she's left with this kind of confusing love 
for him and which for me is the reason that I picked the story because like it's kind of a fun idea and I and I love what it gets at like you were talking about one child escaping from a, a family with alcoholism that felt very real but the thing that really like dug at me and made me dis that discomforted me is this the size of the love that she has for him and that she doesn't know how to express because it's in many ways parental but she's embarrassed that it's parental and so because she's embarrassed and feels guilty it comes out kind of feeling a bit conflicted and almost lustful for him you know she talks about the the tight curve of his belly and the way he stands and and it just kind of makes you go he makes it literal at one point entirely self-aware in discussing an incestuous idea she has which she knows she shouldn't have but it's there that conflict inside of her i found to be very beautifully drawn and um you know in some ways sort of reciprocated by ben like when they're in the bath together and he's lacing his fingers between her toes and she describes it as like maybe he wants to hold hands but doesn't know how but i see that as like whoa that's like even more supremely intimate i read this story and at the end of the second paragraph i thought why do we start stories the way we start them because like this story the first paragraph is i didn't tell my brother that we'd been eating our father's remains sorry i didn't tell my brother that we'd been eating our father's cremains until a few days had passed I know Ben well enough to know that he needs to be eased into things. In middle school, when I wanted to grow talking plants, I didn't start with the Venus flytrap, did I? No. I brought one dandelion into our room to whisper motivational phrases into Ben's ear while he slept. So those are the first three lines of the first paragraph. One, sweetly, gently creepy, right? The dandelion whispering. And the second paragraph starts, we hadn't seen our father for six years when a woman I'd never met before called to tell me he was dead. She'd found him sitting in his recliner with a cordless phone in his hand. He'd only been living an hour north of us the whole time. Part of me wanted to go to his trailer park, pick up the phone, and press redial just to see what number would pop up to know if it was us, his children, on his mind in those last moments. And I enjoy thinking both of those paragraphs begin us more or less in media res, and they both create a sense of here are people here's the situation what's going on with them so why start with i didn't tell my brother that we've been eating our father's cremains until a few days had passed okay i mean i have one so if you come up if you come up sure i can okay oh yeah well i could put it like so why why do that like it'd be cool to talk about that my thoughts were uh there is a power that we grant the beginning of stories, by which I mean, by that I don't mean we like writers, I mean we readers. Mm -hmm. We come to a story ready to believe anything. So if you got some crazy shit you want us to get ready for, or if you, you got some crazy shit that you want us to just accept as though it's the most normal thing in the world, you just put it in the first three sentences, okay, that's cool. Also, right, the story like we've been talking about is entirely about her conflicted feelings about her relationship with her brother and the links to which she goes to make that relationship real. Mm -hmm. So you can't start the story with a paragraph about the father and how they hadn't seen the father because that's not what the story is about. The story is about what she's doing to her brother. Mm -hmm. So you got to start with the first one with feeding the brother. Yeah, also I think when we talked about The Goldfinch by Donna Tartt, you talked about her habit of 
almost always pitching the beginning of chapters and scenes after some embarrassingly awkward decision had been made. Mm-hmm. And that's what this story does. I, I 100% agree with all three of your reasons. And the other one I would add is tone. It says there's something about the tone that's in addition to, but similar to the kind of uh, magical expectations the first sentence sets that, that lets you know it's going to be this breezy tone. Whereas if you start with a father paragraph, it would be all hard-hitting emotions. You know, this might not be... It, it just sends a different message about the kind of story it, it's going to be. Um, and whereas the tone and that she actually opened with is very specific to this story. You mentioned the word cuddly when we were talking about stuff. <laughs> and for me, the story brought to mind what I think of as the genre of friendly horrors, which is a genre that I would say that includes people like Karen Russell and maybe Judy Budnitz, mm. possibly Kevin Brockmeyer, and definitely Kelly Link. Stories that are born out of such a deep familiarity with the tropes of horror that it becomes almost familial. The feeling that for me, like these people, the writers, or at least the people in the story that the writers are representing, the element of horror, like ghosts or vampires or devils or whatever, are almost like friends. They're the friends of the people in the story. They are the intimates. And it's a great fit for this story since it's a story, you know, of the the literal domestication of horror, that all of this magic and horrible stuff was the architecture where their love lived. I guess. Do you live inside of architecture? Yeah, I think yeah, so. I guess you do. Um, and that, that did send me down the line of thinking about this story and the amount of cuddliness in it, in it, the relationship between Ben and Addie itself. Like, in a way that's absolutely right. Like, in the Faulkner sense, the most interesting thing in the story is Addie's heart in conflict with itself. That makes it everything. Mm. And yet, the the story and aiming for what I think of as something that Kelly Link does very well, which is to write stories where the emotional horror is far outstrips the scariness of any of the monsters in her story. Mm. I felt like in, in this story, in thinking about Ben and a character who was so willing to go along with the story itself, a character for whom the sacrifice of home has not seemed to ultimately affect his perception of his sister, I thought... Oh, it would have been interesting to see some part of her struggle enacted more in an emotionally fraught moment between her and Ben and I, mm. for all that Addie struggles in the story, for all that we adore that conflict with herself, at the end of the story, it feels like the only thing she's had to sacrifice is imagining that she can communicate her love to her brother. She doesn't seem to have sacrificed her relationship with her brother or her relationship with her father. Right, yeah, I, I get what you mean. There, there's, And in a way, the relationship hasn't changed by the end of the story. Although she's come out with it, and, and you know they've had this confrontation, which then ends up in them vom- vomiting their, their father out, there's a sense that there's nothing fundamentally different about their relationship. Maybe he'll go back to where he came from. Maybe they'll continue to talk as much as they did before. I don't know. I think I think you're right. There could be another little for those for those who can't see what I'm doing in my hand. I'm just sort of rubbing the air to feel like the nap of a cloth. <laughs> I I think the relationship is different. I think because now she's 
come to terms with the shame she has for the amount of love she has for Ben, she'll be more willing to reach out to him. Mm. I think she's come to terms with that. Uh, what it what it is for me is the 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 thought of what did Ben lose when he sacrificed home. There was a line for me that the story pivoted round, which is when she's ask when Addie asks Ben says to Ben, hey, at least those terrible moments of our childhood made good stories. You know, the the moments where she used the magic to cover up the things that were ha- the bad things that were happening. And he says, oh, I haven't I haven't told my friends about that. And she says, well, at least you, you they do they know that you even have a sister. And this sort of desperation <laughs> that comes through in that phrase, I'm just like, oh, my heart broke for her. You know, her, her she needs she needs her love and her feelings and her sacrifice to be acknowledged by him. My pick for this week is a selection of very short stories from Osama Alamar, who is the author of the collection The Teeth of the Comb and Other Stories, a book translated by Osama and C.J. Collins. Uh, and I selected eight stories, four of which you can go read on vice.com. There'll be a link in the show notes, four of which I'm afraid you'll just have to read the book. Osama is a Syrian writer that's living in exile in Pittsburgh, which the back of the book will tell you, but I will tell you because you might not have the book in your hands. Uh, and the stories are of a fantastic nature, full of talking animals and garden hoses and long lost loves all of which are born from war and exile and a deep kind of warm despair. There is a heart and a morality to these stories, no matter how much the depths of bitterness might take them. Some of the stories are a very few lines, hardly even a fable, almost a joke that isn't really a joke, but kind of is a joke. There's one about a horse empathizing with the struggle of a water hose as it wrestles in the grips of the farmer holding it, which is it's, it's one of my favorites in part because the horse is like, yeah, go on, fight. And you're like, okay. Uh, and a few, a few of these stories stretch to two or three pages, like the one called Love Letter, in which the letter writer addresses their words to a former love now lost in a nation at war with itself. In both of those stories, and and all of my favorite ones, really, there is a sense of loss and cruelty and misguidedness that is leavened as much as possible at times by the animating power of this guy's imagination, which I adore. Yeah, I I think the one that I connected with most out of the the ones that you picked was the bag of the nation in which a man takes down a bag from on top of his wardrobe, a bag that he's inherited from his grandfather, and he goes out into the world, into other countries, to, to tell them about all of this wonder that his nation has to, has to offer. And as soon as he opens the bag in a public place, uh, it is, it's nothing. It's, <laughs> it's like co- the cones of Dunshire. Um, you know, it, 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 Link a bomb- in the show notes, what that means. <laughs> oh yeah, for anybody who didn't get that, Parks and Rec reference and he and he is a laughing stock and I for me there was this it was incredibly resonant with 
a Dolly Parton song called Coat of Many Colours, where she, her mum sews her a coat out of lots of patchwork bits, and she's really excited about it, and she's really proud, and she wears this coat to school, and then all the other kids, of course, laugh at her. Mm. And every time I hear that song, I cry. <laughs> and when I read this story, it made, you know, it gave me the same kind of despair that that it's those it's those feelings of having such trust and happiness in your home and your heritage that are then mocked mm. in the outside world that frankly are the cause of <laughs> a lot of our like poor emotional um, development emotional travesty emotional yeah. traumas yeah exactly yeah, 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 exactly yeah, yeah, you know because we we do it one time and then we learn that this is bad behavior. We will be mocked for it. <laughs> and then and then we never do it again. And it leads us to distrust and hate the places and things that we come from. And that is so deeply sad to me. What you describe, you know, is is perhaps the, the, the darkest turn at that corner where you decide to never do it again. And in the case of the story of the bag of the nation, you put everything back in the bag and you go home and you bury that in your backyard and you're like, I'm done with that. Never and also again. his face is disfigured. Um, well, that's the thing, right? Is this the part of what shines through in this collection is exactly that, that conflicted feelings about your heritage, right? We, we know that these stories are in part born out of the Syrian civil war and imagining reading these stories, imagining the characters in them, the various forms of misguidedness, hope, the various forms of conflict uh, with the coat of many colors, the bag of many colors. It made me think about how all of the stories in this collection create a kind of complicated romance with romanticism. Because yeah, like right, the, that, bag the bag of the nation is described as being colored like a storm of rainbows and in that don't give up the fight story where the horse is talking to the hose there's such elevated language mm. such soaring adverbs <laughs> and these unlikely uh comrades that kind of make you smile but it seems i mean you kind of feel like i don't think you guys, I don't think this is working, but I'm kind of happy. I think happy. you're really on the same side. Yeah, I don't know. And 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 so you get like this romantic language that's, that's often married to this sense of misguidedness. Like in that bag story, the, the romance literally blows up in the guy's face and mm. disfigures him. And then there's a story, again, that, that's very short and goes much more allegory than the bag of the nation, which I guess is an allegory, but it's a longer one. Uh, the beautiful face, which is a description really of the beautiful face of history, that as you get close to it, you see its pupils are the openings of two giant cannons firing intercontinental ballistic missiles through the ages. You're like, oh, okay. And then at the very end, you get a, the story called The Veil, which describes a brilliantly colored veil of imagination laid over the world that does not change in any way the world's topography. Um, and I felt that that's such a struggle of the book that was endearing and saddening and, and hopeful in a way that that struggle with the, the the beauty and the possibilities and the limitations of one's romantic ideals and imaginations of home and the world it's in its entirety mm. yeah like the, the frustration of an artist like i can i can write mm. and paint and draw and create these works that come from and talk about the situation and my heritage but what 
difference am I really making? You know, I can imagine that being a, a something that haunts him. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And I think, though, uh, what I loved is that he transforms what might be that personal struggle into also an ability to pull out the failure of ideology, which is also a romantic notion. The, these big ideas, soaring ideas of human civilization and what it can be, and how that often also blows up, not just in a person's face, but in an entire nation's face. Something that I thought about when I read these stories, and in particular this old nation's one, which is a, a conversation between two pieces of paper money. I know, right? I struggled with how to describe that. It's so ingrained in me to be like dollar bills or pounds that <laughs> the, the story didn't name the, the money. And I was like, what do I call money without a name of money? That is, yes, just paper money. Paper money? It sounds fake to me when I say, you got any paper money? Paper money? It's a conversation between these two, these two pieces of paper money that say that sighs in despair at the way they are treated, just handed between person to person. And uh, the story makes the point that there are many nations that are thrown under the wheels of um, other more powerful nations doing the same thing, but treating them simply as pawns on the game on the pawns on the chessboard or pieces of money to be traded between each other and the thing that i thought of on this was um the kind of political satirical uh cartoon that you might see in the new yorker or uh in the new statesman something like that it's a very you know i can almost see the pocket the pocket that's bulging with the bills as they talk to each other and you know the kind of background of nations and sort of Syria written written on one of them and I just it felt so much like the same idea but two artists choose to portray it in different ways and Osama has done it with words because those are his métier and an artist does it in a different way and I really enjoyed that little insight into seeing seeing an idea painted in one way when I would immediately tend to paint it in another. I think there is power in the fact that Syria as a subject is very often not named. I don't, I'm mm. not actually sure if it's named at all in the books. And that erasure of the name, I feel like, further complicates ideas of home and identity that sure. both give it a little extra, uh, I mean, I don't want to say magic, but <laughs> clearly that's what I mean. Um, magic and realism. Yeah, magic and realism. It's true. Uh, you know what the story's reminded me of? Tell me. Yeah, uh, I will. Yeah, I know I don't like guessing games. Uh, this <laughs> book my sister gave me uh, called Mostly True, which uh, collected stories and drawings by Brian Andreas, which was a collection uh, that seemed, as you were reading it, kind of similar to this one, to be assembling itself one piece at a time, one paragraph at a time, one word at a time. You got the feeling kind of like in the documentary you and I watched uh, called Abstract. I think it was an episode of Abstract, this documentary series on Netflix, where a designer would first thing when he sat down in his study to go to work, would spill a bit of coffee on his page or something and just take 20 minutes and try and create something out of what was around him. And that's what these stories in Mostly True were like. They had a sense of performance, a sense of live performance being recorded. You know, the, the, the difference between when you go see Valerie June live or when you're listening to a record, the little 
the extra energy there is and the feeling that there's a person in front of you making it up as they go along rather than a person in a studio tinkering for several weeks to get it right. As such, like the, the, the pieces in this book, they may feel sometimes slight or there may be a tendency maybe to miss somehow, but the very ephemeralness of it, the, the performativeness of it mm. means that those moments when they capture something of life, when it hits right, when it lands some idea of, of war or love or something, when it renders those moments perfectly and it clicks, they feel all the more profound. They feel all the more like they do in life, like a gift. I agree, but the thing I'm going to say in response is the one moment where I disagree, which was there was a line in Love Letter um, that that said, uh, the enslavement of humans to destructive notions and ideas is far more dangerous than the enslavement of humans to other humans. And I was like, is it? Is it really? How different are they? Is one just an example of the other? Maybe, and, yeah, yeah, I think... Uh, and I, I felt, I like, I'm, I'm chewing over the idea of, has he just gone for a line that sounds good because of the, the balance and symmetry of it over something that is profoundly true? I love it because it's complicated. Like, I picked Love Letter in part. I wanted to include it because that is a place where the romanticism is made literal mm-hmm. because it's a love letter. Mm-hmm. And there are lines along the lines of feelings blossoming in the spring of her beauty and the pressing of his heart and the contraction of her pupils which which i felt like is kind of like i feel like there's a way to read the love letter where that line that you're referring to is in a letter in which this guy is using this saurian language to describe a woman that he has left behind in a country that he has left behind that he has lost and he's saying at the end of the letter i'm going to keep writing these letters until i find my soul like this is how Mm. he's going to find his soul that that exactly what you're saying, like the conflict in your head, like, is this idea really real or just something that sounded good is a part of the experiment itself in the writing of this book and in the writing of that story. And, and I, yeah, like there's no answer. Like, no, it, no. It, it is not right, but it is right because you could totally make an argument that the enslavement of people is born out of an idea of one group of people being better than the other. So that idea is more dangerous because no matter how much we work to free individual groups of people, so long as 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 people still believe it. Yeah, believe in that idea in any form, it's more dangerous. So I kind of believe it. Like it kind of is profound to me and feels more profound because it's deployed in a book that's questioning the idea of these big ideologies Mm -hmm. and statements like that. Yeah, I, I mean, I would, I could go with that. They have a comfort, a comfort with ambiguity. These stories that is helpful in life to take out into the world with you. Like, it doesn't mean at all that you should be comfortable with people doing things that we don't believe in, but but that we should develop a comfort with understanding nuance and ambiguity in the ways people behave toward each other. Thanks for listening, readers. 
We have probably not said all of the things about all of these stories that we discussed today. Nor have we almost certainly discussed anywhere near the total number of stories that exist in the universe. So if you would like to get in touch and let us know your thoughts on these stories or make recommendations for what we should look at in future episodes, you can hit us up on Twitter. We are at Storylogical. Which is story. Like the word. O. Like the letter. And logical. Like Aristotle. Uh, you can follow Emma on Twitter. She is at E.G. Kosh. And you can follow Chris on Twitter. He is at Kuvols. Uh, you can also follow and like us on Facebook. We are at facebook.com slash storylogical, which you almost certainly know how to spell. Um, and if you have enjoyed this episode, please seek us out on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. It helps us massively in their algorithms and helps more people discover us. Mm, which we love. And if you are constitutionally or monarchically, monarchically, rule of law, religiously, yeah, physically works. opposed to Apple or iTunes, there is the entire universe of social media, which you can uh, deploy in our benefit uh, and tell people an episode that you love and why you love it. And really just um, force feed it to them as though <laughs> they were your brother and you miss them and you have a conveniently dead father nearby, which in this case is a metaphor for our episode. So that's an beautiful, unfortunate... Beautiful. Uh, yeah, it's an unfortunate beauty, uh, as is most of the world. Um, for show notes, links to past episodes, links to interviews, all of the things, plus so much more. <laughs> At our home on the web. Storylogical.com Thanks for listening, readers. Happy reading. Turtle's a uh, little-known fact, a very accurate animal. Yeah? Yeah, yeah. Perfect recall. Oh, no, no, not that kind of accurate. It's just their, their, their home. It's always where they left it. <laughs> they have an accurate recre- like, recollection like of where they live. They're like the antithesis of squirrels. And... And their inability to remember right. where they're nuts. What do squirrels do? They plant trees. They plant trees. According to Sarah, what's her face? Well, I mean, according, I think, probably to scientific research, but we did hear it you from think? Sarah Silverman. I don't know. I feel like she would not necessarily uh, recount well, the factual. I grew up with squirrels. That's what they do. They plant trees. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I seen them. You seen them? Yeah. They were in your school. No, 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 no. They don't let squirrels in my school. We uh we have a rule. It's not an integrated school. No, it's not integrated school. Strictly human. Uh huh. That's that's the name of my memoir. <laughs> Strictly human. <laughs>